Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Ville Church, how y'all doing this morning? Can we please howl? Because we haven't done it in a long time. I love it. It's the Wolf Pack up in here. Wolf Pack Misfit Gang in the building. All right, praise the Lord. I'm happy to be with y'all this morning. We are going to be inside of Colossians 1, and we are actually going through Colossians 1, 3 through um, 14. And Pastor uh, Rodney and uh, Elder Tony have both been taking us through this text. And when it was my time up to bat, I kept saying to myself I was trying to move away to go to something else, but like the text just kept grabbing me. So I was just like, I'm going to actually float over all of what we've already covered um, and even hit some of what I covered in, in Colossians 1 through um, in, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 also as far as context. So what's going on here is that Paul is writing a letter to the church of Colossae and he's writing a letter to the church of Laodicea, right? And when you read the text that we're going to be going through in a minute, it's beautiful. He's actually celebrating the fact that the word is coming back from a guy by the name of, I'm going to call him Epap because I don't want to mess his name. Um, so I'm going to call him Epap, no disrespect to him, but normally I always go in and like see how you actually pronounce these people's names because I hate to preach and be saying names wrong, which I've done before, and I didn't for him. So out of respect, I'm going to give him a nickname so I don't butcher his name throughout this whole sermon. But anyway, Epap has planted the church in Colossae, and he has reported back to Paul. He is like, amazing stuff is happening. Um, the people here have faith in Jesus Christ, and, and there's love between the saints. So he's telling that, and Paul and them are excited. And so it's good news. And then Paul responds, but when he hears it, you know, I want to go through how he actually responds here, because he responds by saying, we've been praying for you even more, Right? He says, we've been praying for you even more. Um, and then he doubles down. I'm not going to get into it very much, but he doubles down on the gospel real hard. You would think he would just hear that they're doing great, that they're loving each other, they're having faith in the Lord. And he would be like, man, they're loving the gospel. They're getting it. And just be like, cool, just want to send you a letter, keep doing your thing. But he's like, no, we actually started praying for you more. What's important in this and what we will miss if you don't dig into this, is that you fill in all of the spots on this text with our cultural understanding. So when he says, the saints have love for each other, everybody has like an idea of love. Do you have like an idea of what love is, whatever? Like before I was a Christian, um, you know, love for me, whatever, somebody like gave me like some extra weed or something while I was buying weed, I was like, yo, man, they show love. You know, I'm just keeping it real. I'm like, yo, the dude was showing love. He's a really good dude. Like, no, that's who you want leading you. That's how I felt. I had an idea of love. And then I had an idea of what love was and also. So, like, if my homeboys were like, yo, let's go do something, I had this phrase. And the phrase was, you know I'm in. You know me. No love. That's what, that was my phrase. I had, a, I had an ideology for what not having love was, and I had an ideology what, for what love was. But... It was carnal, and it was fleshly, and it was all based around my personal appetites. You understand? 
And so in my spirit was my personal appetites, but what actually informed that was the culture around me that I was planted in. Y'all get where I'm coming from? And culture is evasive on all levels. It is, excuse me, it is, it is persistent in rooting itself in every single part of your life. The way you think, the way you walk, the way you talk, everything. Problem with culture, though, is that culture can be ran by capitalists. They can use it to just wield their influence and shape culture or whatever and turn us all into a bunch of consuming zombies. Y'all get where I'm coming from? Maybe I'm jumping too early or whatever. Y'all were still with me? Okay. All right. Y'all stay with me. So my point is this right here. I want to make sure we do a good job of chewing on what Paul is saying to these people in Colossae and Laodicea by making a big deal about the context that they are actually in. Because it will illuminate what love means, and it will illuminate what having faith in Christ Jesus is, and it tells us about how we actually stand, walk, and talk as Christians and our culture being birthed from our love and our relationship with Jesus and each other. Y'all get me? That's what I want to do today. That's what I want to do today. So let me read this to you. So Colossians 1, I'm going to start with verse 3, says this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we, have, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Right? So... Your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all saints. And then this because part is a very big deal. Because what he's saying right here is that you actually grasp the whole scope of the gospel. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is a statement about culture, and he's going to roll us right into it. The reason it's a statement about, about culture is because he's celebrating their faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints as it is working itself out in the midst of the culture they stand in. Y'all with me so far? What does it mean? Why does it even matter to have a hope, a future hope? Like, I don't care about going to, 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 to you know, adventure landing if I'm in Disney World right now, or Bush Gardens, you get where I'm coming from? Adventure landing, I like it, but you know, they got like three slides or something. Do they even got three slides? But in Bush Gardens, they got slides all over the place. There's flamingos walking around. You know what I'm saying? You could buy that one chicken wing that's like this big. It's like the size of one of my kids. Why would I have a hope for something in the future if I've romanticized my right now? So when he's celebrating them, he's saying, you actually believe what the gospel says about this world being broken, about it the, the coming judgment that the world is going to suffer for its rebelliousness to God, for breaking his law. He's saying you actually believe that. He's saying that you actually believe that and you are actually looking for this future hope. In relationship, you're dealing with the hardness that comes with relationship and you're doing it through the power of God and you have this hope that, 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 that catapults you, that pushes you, that is an engine for you, that breathes life to you because you are looking towards heaven going, God, we are waiting for that day when you fix all that's broken, when you actually wipe all of these tears away. So they haven't sanitized their existence and pulled themselves in the comfort zone. They're in the middle of it. 
So their understanding of the gospel takes all of these things into account. You get where I'm coming from? Y'all with me so far? So let's talk about Colossae and Laodicea. I told y'all a little about this when I preached on it when we first started the series. So Colossae and Laodicea, and the reason I say both of them, even though he's talking to the Colossians, is because he's actually talking directly to the Colossians, but he's also talking about Laodicea as well. And we'll see that when we get in chapter 2 of Colossians because he actually starts off the letter addressing them directly. They were so closely, um, they, they, they were so closely situated that, you know, one was doing bad, the other was doing bad. They were sister cities, right? And both of them were thriving in textiles. They were, they were thriving economically, and a lot of good stuff was happening with them, you know, economically, so to speak. If, if you're about the money, you were like, this is great. But there's also a lot of corruption. There's a lot of, a lot of corruption with the leadership, and, and, and there, there even became a point when the emperor got into, you have to actually worship me. And it was costing Christians to make a decision. Who are you rolling with? You gonna chase your money or are you gonna follow Jesus, right? You gonna bow to this idol? So they were being put in this place where they had to make a decision whether or not they were actually going to have faith in Jesus Christ for real and if they're gonna have love for all the saints in the midst of these horrible circumstances which is the world that we're sitting on them. Y'all with me so far? So if you are the press, but you are finding hope in Jesus, then good. If you were the, the affluent, but the affluent, but finding hope in Jesus, then good. But if you were both of these and you were finding hope in Jesus and you were having relationship with each other, that it was actually bearing fruit because of the work of the Spirit in your life, then bravo, the Spirit of God was at work in you, right? So he's celebrating that. He's celebrating that being in the midst of the context, in the midst of the hope of the gospel. That, it, that, that was the report that EPAP was throwing back to me saying, man, he said, I'm out here to put the church together. These people actually are feasting on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way it is actually playing out is that they are actually loving each other really well. And they are actually grabbing hold of the gospel. Y'all with me? Now, on the flip side of this thing, it's not all a pretty story because in Revelations 3.14, we see another narrative happening concerning uh, Laodicea, where they're being addressed as one of the churches by the angel, right? I want to read this to you. It says, and to the, it, 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 I want to read this to you. You heard me read this a couple of weeks ago. It says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you I say, I am rich. Excuse me. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me, the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquer and sat down with my father on his throne. He has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's against the Scripture. That's some scary stuff. And it's scary because they actually thought they, they were doing the Christian thing really, really good. They thought they were cute. They thought they had it all together, right? But here they're getting rebuked. It's like, yeah, you actually think you're balling and actually killing it and doing your thing, but you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And he says, I'm trying to, I try to give you some salve to anoint your eyes so you can see. So as I was telling you just a couple weeks ago, the problem was an issue that they were actually blind and they could not see. So the question is, what were they actually being blinded by? What they're being blinded by is based on what we know about the prosperity and the culture that lived in Laodicea, they had got swept up in it. No longer was God actually informing them about their wretchedness no longer is the mercy of God this beautiful thing to taste because you realize, right? You re like, here's the thing. We talk about mercy and then we, we, we usually kind of have this posture to it like, oh man, God, you're so good. Like he actually owes us mercy. Mercy is something that only exists in the midst of judgment. In true judgment. Mercy means you are supposed to die and I had mercy and stopped you from dying. Do you get where I'm coming from? So we have to have a, a true relationship with the word, or we just turn into another Christian word for a Hallmark card, right? You get where I'm coming from? It's, it's, it's wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Whose mercy runs deep enough to come grab me as I see myself and my brokenness in the sin? As I look at all of the brokenness in the world and the most disgusting things I can behold about the world and the way hatred plays out and selfishness and how I see how it all systematically just breaks and bruises and crushes and I can bring it all the way back to my doorstep and say, I see my fingerprints all on it too. Who, who, what mercy goes deep enough for me, right? That's what mercy actually is. But somewhere they lost that. They lost that. And them losing it didn't look like them claiming to be warriors of the, against the Christian faith. It didn't look like them turning their back on God, per se, because the culture still let them actually feel like they were some of the best Christians. Do you get where I'm coming from? And so he hits them. He jabs them hard. And this is, this is a scripture out of love. You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. I'll spit you out of, your, out of my mouth. But in the, this is what they're saying. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched. That was the posture that they took on. Culture was telling them that they were rich. Culture was telling them they had prospered. It was actually giving them credibility while discrediting the gospel. Y'all with me? So a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. A form of godliness, not true godliness. So when Paul writes this and he says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ 
and the love that you have for all the saints. He's saying that in the middle of this deception, in the middle of all of these currents of wickedness that wish to pollute the truth of the gospel, right? In the middle of people championing what goodness looks like and what to be a Christian is, or, or even if it's anti-God but saying it's truth, in the middle of that, y'all are holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are actually loving each other, right? You are actually doing what Mark 12 tells us to do. Let me read Mark 12, 28 to you. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, answered him, asked him, he's talking to Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that one, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In a nutshell, what we see in Mark 12 is the same thing that Paul is rejoicing over in Colossians 1, right? This loving God with all your heart is the same as your faith in Christ Jesus. Because God the Father always, as the scripture says, points you to the work of his son, right? That's what he does. He points you to his son. The Bible actually tells us there is no such thing as saying you have seen the father and you have not seen the son. But if you say you have seen the son, then you have seen the father. There's no getting around Jesus. The father exalts his son. Y'all with me so far? This second part of loving your neighbor, that's what he's saying in Colossians 1. Love that you have for all of the saints. They are actually living out the greatest commandment in the context of a wicked world that looks to pollute truth in the gospel. One focuses on Jesus, his word. The other one focuses on others. And then the third part of that focuses only on you. That's just a joke. It doesn't focus on you at all. It doesn't focus on you. It says focus on the Father, loving him with all your heart, and then it says focus on your neighbor as yourself. As we are enjoying Christ, as we're doing the work of beholding Christ, he does the work on us. The same way he actually paid the penalty for us. The same way he bought our salvation for us and gave it to us as a gift. The way he laid his life down with his precious blood. He does all of the work for us to the point that we can almost be forgetful and just enjoy him. And then another way he reveals his splendor is us loving our neighbor. You get how that works? There's no third part to that. This is the greatest commandment. This is the greatest commandment, loving our neighbor. But our American Christian narrative is steeped in individualism, right? It's always about 
us. It's about what we deem as being healthy. And culturally, it may line up to what the culture says is actually healthy. But does it line up biblically? It's a question we have to all ask ourselves. When are we hearing from the Lord? And when are we just hearing the whispers of what culture tells us is right and wrong? Any of y'all ever stew through these questions? There's times that as a pastor, I get mad at certain things, and I can I could write you a whole, a whole, a whole book on why I think I'm right. And I go read one sentence in the word, and it just smacks the mess out of me. I don't, I don't, it, it gets to the point where like I just realize like our nature is so simple, we can't even trust our own emotions and what we think. On our best day, we're not trustworthy. Like, we have to hold to Jesus like a little baby who is, like, scared to move away from our parents. That is the most safest, secure spot we have for this condition of sin that we have in this flesh. It's no other safe place. As soon as we think we're cute, we're in Laodicea mode. We get away, and we're like, no, no, I'm good, pops. You get where I'm coming from? You know when your kids get to park or whatever? Like, that's Jules or whatever. He's two years old. I'm like, yo, homie, come on. Nah, man, I got this. He'll, he'll be out. He'll be at the town center while we're in church if we let him go out the door. You get him coming from and make it back somehow. But, like, we get cute. We're like, I'm, I'm, I'm cool out here. I don't actually need you like that. We, we begin to feel accomplished in, in perpetuating life at, at the speed of our own mind away from actually needing God, right? Often when I find myself in that dark place where I'm complaining about what it feels like and what it means to actually pastor a church and the stuff that comes with it that nobody sees, the stuff that like grieves my soul to the core, sitting around feeling bad for myself and whatever kind of mess is going on in my mind. And then I look inside of the text and I see where Moses is called to lead. Stiff-necked is how the Bible describes it. Stiff-necked, hard-hearted people for 40 years. I don't know what culture you come from, but my culture would say that's unhealthy. You say it's unhealthy, but it was God's will. So when I read something like that, it, it says, Jay, we, what are we, what we doing? We trying to take God's hand and make it move where we want it to move? Or are we saying, God, what is your will? And then seeking for God to empower in that, us in that place. But man, culture always finds its way in that conversation. It always seeks to make me manipulate God to do what I want it to do. Let me read this scripture right here, 2 Corinthians 8.13, because it smacks our individualism in the face. 2 Corinthians 8.13 says, it says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. He's talking about the people of God, the family of God. He says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. That's completely at odds of the culture. You mean a people group 
who consider themselves brothers and sisters, loving each other so much that the person who actually makes too much refuses to have too much to make sure the person who has too little never knows what too little is. I don't want to get political. You can fill in the spaces. I'll leave you there with that. 1 Corinthians 12 says this. If one member suffers, they're talking about the body of Christ specifically in context. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's not that the person across the room has a problem. It means that person across the room, their problem is your problem. They have a financial problem, that's now your problem. They have sickness, that's now your problem. Meet it with some prayer, meet it with some anointing oil, but meet it with something, that's your problem. They have a kid that's out of line and they don't know what to do with it, that's now your kid that's out of line. If you don't do anything, God gives us the power of prayer to insert in that situation. Y'all with me so far? This is not, this don't meet up with our culture. This is not cultural Christianity. If you, if, you, if you go to most people and ask them why they've been hurt in churches, nine times out of ten, they're going to be saying because there was a divide and it didn't feel like love for real. This is, this is what the Spirit of God is urging us towards. I don't care what culture you come out of, black culture, white culture, Asian culture, I don't care what it is. It doesn't perpetuate this like this, right? And even if it has moralized this in it, you'll find out that that goodness is very shallow outside of the power of God. I don't care, you go to any social worker you want to. After they see enough blood splattered on the ground, enough heads blown off, after a while they're just like, I don't see the hope in this anymore. I don't see the hope in this anymore. That is always the thing that they are stewing through. We don't stay in the game because we're good. We stay in the game because we're empowered by God. That's it. Nobody's showing up to love the community because that's an awesome thing. We can go chase money and do other things and chill on beaches all day. It's the power of God that compels our hearts to do so. You hear what I'm saying? And we can't romanticize it even with culture, even though the good works we have. Even the good works we have are not to be romanticized with a cultural norm that is just out of our goodness. That is to take the glory from the power of God. And it's not true. John Piper says this. He says, and so let it be said again, it is not heavenly mindness that binds the hands of love. On the contrary, it is the worldly desire for Egypt's pleasures and the worldly fear of suffering that shackles the hands of love. It's not heavenly mindedness. In other words, we don't get so, when he talks about them having a hope that they are rooted in Colossians 1, when he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, it's not that they are so caught up in la-la land and in heaven that they become not mindful of their neighbor or mindful of the Lord. It's saying that them having this hope is making them forgetful of themselves to the point that they are feasting on Christ and lavishing what they receive from the Lord on others. Right? Go try to love somebody. You will find out how impatient you are real quick. Right? Last night I was driving home. Lana's like, I'm cooking. 
and I made one of my famous stops along the way that she hates for me to make and that I don't tell her about because I'm like, I'm just going to make this stop really quick, real quick, just dipping real fast. So one of the kids, the first kid I ever met through EVAC, right, he's at BurgerFi, so I'm like, cool, it's on the way, I'm going to stop in the BurgerFi. I stop in the BurgerFi, sit down, only got two minutes, brother. 40 minutes later, I look up, and I'm like, hey, hey, babe, hey, hey yeah. Trying to, because you know you got to test out the tone to see how mad they are, like, you know what I'm saying? And luckily, like, her mom was there, so she was having fun in the kitchen and chilling, whatever. So I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, so, you know, I got caught up and I explained the situation. And then I'm like, all right, but I'm going to be leaving in a minute. So, boom, I talk for a little bit longer, jump in the car, and I'm rolling. And I see Josh. Who knows Josh? Everybody knows Josh. You know, you know Josh. It's your local neighborhood bus stop hanger around it. Don't even take the bus. Just be at the bus stop for no reason, chilling. I see Josh, and he's like, yo, Jay, give me a ride, bro. Get in the car. Where are we going? Deep Orange Park, all the way away from my crib. And I'm just like. <sighs> so I take him in the bike all the way over there. Take him all the way over there. And of course, we got to go to Whataburger. So I'm starving. Watching him eat, it just, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. I don't even realize, I don't even remember why I got into the story. Oh, yeah, I think I was talking about loving people. It costs something. It costs something. It does. Like, it costs something. Man, do we remember what it costs Jesus? Like in those moments, right? In those moments, do we remember what it costs Jesus? Like how does, how does the... How does what happened on the cross inform us in these moments when we're prone to not having patience with other people, right? When, when our time is being trampled by other people, right? I'm not saying that there is this reckless thing where you can just do whatever, whatever, right? My wife's time needs to be respected, right? So I'm not just talking about Let's just say yes to everybody because it's the thing to do. There's wisdom to be held in the middle of this. But like often when people are waging, you know, wading through the tensions of these kind of conversations, they aren't talking about using wisdom. They're talking about protecting their time. They're talking about protecting their power. They're talking about protecting their money. They're talking about what is it going to cost them, right? So, so, the, so the way we usually work through it is not from a place of, Father, what would you have me to do, right? In the light of what you, what does it look like for me, Father, in this moment to act like you with the circumstances that I'm being presented with? We normally are only waging it against what it's going to cost us and why not to do something. Y'all get where I'm coming from? There's a difference in posture. When Jesus enters the conversation, it changes, when the cross enters in the conversation, it changes. 
we must become suspect of Christian culture, which actually is anti-Christ and holy to the fire. Perhaps people don't know they are doing this, which can be, which can be the case, but some people still have a foot in the domain of darkness called culture, right? Culture is darkness. There's some things that are redeemable and beautiful in different cultures, but, for the, but we as believers have to keep our eyes open for how culture creeps up to slit our throat. Let me tell you something about my culture and what I grew up in. In my culture, you're supposed to hate white people. I'm not speaking in generalizations for black people. I'm speaking in the culture that I found myself growing up in because of what we suffered from police, what we suffered at the hands of our neighbors, the way I saw my mother get treated at work every day. It makes perfect sense in my flesh for me to have a utter disdain towards white people. And I did all my life. I did all my life until the gospel hit me in the head. And so the actual things I've suffered, being beat by the police for no reason because of the color of my skin, watching my mom and the grief she lived in at work as a black executive being mistreated, watching my wife going through that, watching my kids going through that, watching my friends go through that. makes perfect sense for me to have an axe to grind. But when you put Jesus in this thing, I can't, I can't carry the axe. Do you get where I'm coming from? We ain't good because we good. We're good because Jesus brings light into our dead hearts because he's pulling us out of the domain of darkness. And so what I'm saying is we have to stop romanticizing domains of darkness in the form of culture and trying to call them Christian, right? Verse 6, let me keep it moving because of time. It says, verse 6 says, which has come to you. Sorry, let me jump back to verse 5 to make sure we roll in this right. It says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, increasing, also as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So since they grasped the gospel, a new type of fruit has come to them, right? Despite the culture they live in, despite what it tells them is right and wrong and dictates, dictates to them who they are supposed to be, how they are supposed to think, the gospel of grace has landed on them and it's now bearing a new type of fruit that looks like them having a longing and affection saying, Abba, Father, and them looking at their neighbor going, I love you. And the Bible says that no greater love does someone have than to lay their life down for their friend. That statement is not a, just a quick statement about, I'm willing to lay my life down. That is an all-encompassing issue. It means when your friend is limping, when they're in a wheelchair, when you got to push them, when they're up and they're arrogant, when they discuss you, when they are hurting you, when they are trampling on you, maybe you can't be close to them, but your prayers can always have proximity. It's saying that while we still are here on earth, My love can still be for you. My heart can still be for the ultimate thing of God saving you and redeeming you and holding you and pushing to you. Like, I can celebrate your good. Like, look at this text, what we're looking at. He heard they're doing great and then started praying more. 
right? <laughs> if he would have heard they're doing bad, let's pray more. He responds with prayer. He's not standing next to them. He's praying. He's in proximity with his brothers and sisters through this letter and through prayer. He says, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, I believe is how you say it. We'll call him Epaph. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. This is where I don't want us to miss these terms. Could have just said love. He says love in the spirit. He's not talking about whatever cultural, artificial, full of preservatives type of love their culture defines love as. We got a culture in the streets that says it's love to never snitch. Maybe so. I don't know. But I'll tell you this right here. You do something to my family, homie, I'm giving you your DNA, the, the social security and everything. Hurt one of my babies. You get where I'm coming from? But there's, there's no wiggle room for that in the streets. It's like, no, you don't snitch. That's not love. It's cultural love. It has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with the purity of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with holiness. It has nothing to do with it. It's not love from the Spirit. We have a culture right now where we have a division, a class division, a racial division in the body of Christ. Despicable. Paul says it when he's talking about the church having to divide on issues and going to ungodly lawyers. He says, why are y'all robbing each other in the church? Despicable. There's certain things that we should have a disdain that, that, that actually live inside a body. They become normative for us in the church. It's despicable. Not because we're good and we have an opinion about it, but because God has an opinion about it. Because his blood on the cross calls it despicable. It's despicable. The world is the world. Carnality does what it does. Our flesh does what it does. It's sinful. It craves sin. It loves sin. I get it. But for everybody who champions the cross and parades it around, yet perpetuates systematic racism, right? And here's the thing. I can talk in these big structural systematic things and everything, but I'm not going to do it like that. Who perpetuates not giving credibility to their brothers and sisters when they say they're hurting. Because that is the real hate in hating your neighbor. Right? If I say to you my experience is this, and you turn to me as a brother and sister in Christ and go, you're a liar. Now, now we're a danger to each other. Because you stand on the side of perpetuating the thing that crushes me. And you are undermining everything that is in this gospel right now. Y'all get where I'm coming from? I can preach, teach, or drink a bottle of bleach. So how y'all want to do it today? We're going to keep it real this morning. He's not talking about those games. He's talking about love in the spirit. It means that this is an unearthly brand of love that is coming forth between them. 
This means that this is not something that they are manufacturing because they saw a bunch of great love novels, love novels and, and movies and everything else. It means that their affection and what Christ is actually doing inside of their heart is producing a love that is out of this world. Christ is doing something that is insane. The word of God says that people will see your love for each other and they will know that you are mine. It will give glory to me. But he's not talking about the way we romanticize love. He is talking about Holy Spirit produced power of God love. And it's not, it's not this romanticized version of we're all loving. It means that we are able to endure hardships, differences, um, confusion, misunderstandings, um, um, cultural differences that set us at odds, which for the world, of course, splits them to pieces. They don't have the power of God. How could they work through it? But we do. We do. This is why I'm preaching this today. What cultural things do we need to let go of to see the Spirit of God move and work? What is God saying, this is an idol, this has a hold on you? Because you have to understand, we individually, as well as the church, are, con are currently being sanctified all the time. So we don't show up to church and it's just perfect. The church is being sanctified through the members, through what the Holy Spirit is doing to us in relationship, through the, the grievances, the tensions, the hard things. God is doing this thing. He is building this bride, right? John, 1 John 1 says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what this text is actually saying to us is that the denial, when we deny being sinners, when we don't walk with a certain posture of humility, when we put on the Superman cape of Christianity in our own flesh and walk around like righteousness is something to be attained by our own works and not through the power of God, then we put a block on being pulled into the light by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit causes us to, it, it shines a light of our, on our sin, right? In many Bibles, you'll see that this text right here is, it equates to walking in the Spirit. When we hear that phrase, it is talking about allowing God where, you, where, where, where God is bringing you forth and bring you into the light to confess your sins, where we're constantly growing and being sanctified, right? When people come to me, like somebody came to me um, just the other day, and they, they, they had a complaint about something in church. And they're like, oh, you know, like, I don't want to bother you with that. I'm like, no. It's how our church is sanctified. It's how we learn. It's how we grow, right? It's how we learn and grow. It's, how we, it's what happens in relationship. I get better the more my wife, even though I call it nagging sometimes, which is not me walking in the light. But anyway, I learn so much from her. My daughter has confronted me about being sexist so many times. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. That's why she's one of my best friends. She brings it to me real, so it, it sanctifies me. 
it gets me out of this place where my culture think, and the way I think I see everything the right way, and she just smacks it right out of me. You don't know everything, Pops. Let me show you something. Thank you. Same thing Holy Spirit is doing. But it, we often are not found with this posture of humility. We often can't fathom that we could be wrong about things. And a lot of that is usually based in what our culture has told us is right. It's a lot of what it actually is, right? So this text, when we don't walk in the light, it breaks fellowship with the Father. It's the opposite of what Paul described in the first verses. It doesn't breed faith in Christ Jesus. And this text also says, it says when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So when we are not walking in the light, we are no longer having fellowship with each other. When we are, when we are not in the, when we are not in a place where Holy Spirit is actually building a culture rooted from the heart of Jesus Christ, but we are in the darkness, we're in the domain of darkness, and the world is just washing and rinsing us and doing what it does with us and building lies that are not of God, which happens. But when we refuse to step in the light, we break fellowship with the Father and we break fellowship with each other. That's why we're where we're at in America. That's why we see what's happening with the church and the division and stuff that is going on. People can't be guilty. They don't esteem their brothers and sisters. Nobody has credibility as Christians anymore. And the culture informs us more than God informs us. Just do a little, a quick run on church history in America. When slavery was there, the church was right there with it. When redlining and housing, and I think in between 1930 and 1960, we gave $120, $130 billion away in home loans, 2% were minorities. Guess who was right there getting the paper and going right with it? The church. When Jim Crow was going on, guess who was rooting it on? The church. When Martin Luther King wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail, guess who he was talking to? The church. A reverend at war against his white brothers and sisters. While he's getting spit on, beat on to vote, house blown up, doing funerals for little girls, getting blown up in churches. And they're saying, you need to cool it out, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. You need to slow it down, brother. You need to do the new addition on him. Slow it down a little bit. It's a culture battle. Why were they trying to slow him down? Why would him being treated like a human and his family and these people being put in an in, 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 in a equitable situation, why was this such a threat? It's the same reason it's a threat for the church today. Money, power. Money, power. Money and power is not the objective of Christianity. That's not what we see in the gospel. That's why I'm saying we have to be adamant that when we see cultural things that are anti-gospel, that we slit his throat quick, because it cost us. This is why we're sitting here today. Why we're sitting here today in the church is in the condition that it is, and there's the division that exists, right? Somebody took the banner of Christianity, and they had a form of godliness, but they, were, they, don't, they don't know our Jesus. Verse 9, I'm going to wrap us up here. It says, and so from that day, 
And from that day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Their response is that they did not cease praying. Despite a good report. I feel this. I feel this as a pastor. Like there's this thing where like, you look in, you look in the church sometimes. I look at other pastors. I look at myself. I've seen the best of them. The people who I respect with all my heart walk straight away from the Lord. I'm not their judge, so I don't know the final aspect of their story. But you start to realize, I don't care how cute things look, how cute people, how much they can quote the gospel, how much they seem to have it together, you don't trust that anymore. It makes you want to keep on praying for people no matter where they are at. Do you get where I'm coming from? Because our cute stuff ain't going to hold us here. I'm not going to stay preaching and, and, and proclaiming the gospel because of good, because of, you know, I'm good or like that. It's the power of God. It's the power of God. So when he's praying for them, he's like, I'm praying I'm, matter of fact, let me read to you exactly what he's praying for. He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will. Remember we talked about it earlier? Not asking for our, our will and what we want in the way that that culturally gets, gets completely muddied up or whatever. And like, oh, Lord, that's not healthy, so I'm running. We're not talking. We don't tell God what's healthy and what's not healthy. You understand? We don't. God, what is your will? In the middle of the storm, is that if that's where you will have me, that's the best place on earth for me to be, right? Because you're God, the creator of all things. She so says, I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, not just wisdom. We all can get smart, look at rhythms in the world, navigate stuff, be able to predict certain things, whatever that may be. But he's not talking about fleshly wisdom. He's not talking about because you can look at the marketplace and figure out how it goes. He's talking about a spiritual wisdom that is not something that you can buy on the streets. You can only get it at the foot of cross, cross press, uh, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he gives it out for free to anybody who comes. That is what he's talking about. Something that is birthed of the Spirit of God in Jesus on the cross. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Not in the form of godliness, but actually walking in the power of God. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. All this stuff is talking about him. For all endurance and patience with joy. What you need endurance and patience for? Thought we were in la-la land. We're not in la-la land. This is talking about being in the war field of relationship. I don't care how amazing your wife is, your best friend is. Hang with them for a minute. They'll give you a reason to hate their guts. I don't care how much you think I may be a good Christian. Hang with me for five, ten minutes. You'll be afraid of me. Do you understand? Why do we need endurance and patience? Because it takes the power of God to live this out. Nobody's going to appeal to him in their flesh and get a cookie for being awesome. We're going to be boasting about Jesus. 
That's how this ends. Us boasting, worshiping, gathering around his throne and singing praises to him from the guts of our soul and everything we got because he is the only one worthy. It's not about us being heroes. This is talking about his glory, his glorious might, his strength. All power coming from him. And it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. It is a privilege for us to be able to be called by his name. It says, to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And then once again, to my point in this last scripture, and I'll end it here. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. We were justified at salvation because of the work of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that. We are 100% justified because of what Jesus did on the cross. It means your sins are completely wiped away, right? They're transferred. The penalty of death that is supposed to be ours is put on him, and we get his righteousness. But he also says that he's going to sanctify us. He's sanctifying us in the now. It means that he is dealing with some of these things where we still got our toe inside of the kiddie pool of darkness. Like, man, this thing is so lukewarm and nice. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. I can just go in this thing and chill or whatever. And he's like, yo, you're lukewarm. He's sanctifying that thing. He's doing it. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It's what he promised to us. And what God is pointing us to is and what he's doing in our heart is he's softening our heart for humility for humility, to receive, to step out of darkness and step into his light, that we can have a relationship with him, that we can have a relationship with him, true ongoing relationship, satisfaction in him, and satisfaction in relationship with each other. The church is not supposed to be like what we see the church being today. That's not it. It's, that's not it. And we can't settle for that. And the scripture is not celebrating that. It's celebrating true relationship with the Father and true relationship with each other and then urging them to push forward. Church, stand, let's pray. God, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you, Father. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, Lord, that you have done everything you have done everything for us Father Lord you laid on the cross for us you bared the penalty of death for us you rose again as a sign that you had defeated death and right now Father Lord it says that you still intercede as high priest on our behalf Father Lord I pray that we would find rest from needing to try to grasp for power, for trying to grasp for influence. I thank you, Father, that we will learn to rest in the fact that you have actually done all of these things for us. You've given us dignity because of what you've done. That you have brought us into a new family that is not earthly, Father Lord but it's held together by a sacrifice that you made for us. And we have the Holy Spirit, Father, Lord, to lead us and guide us, Father. But God, as a church, Father, we come before you, Father, Lord, and we are 
grieved by what we see in the world. We are grieved by what we even see in ourselves at times, Father. So our appeal to you, Father Lord, is we pray for ourselves and even as we pray for others. Father, continue growing us in your strength. Continue, Father Lord, helping us to not trust in our own flesh. Continue, Father Lord, helping us to utter out the words, your will, not mine. We don't assume that we are good in that kind of way. We need the power of God that would cause us to forego ourselves, to see your way, and to love others when our flesh wants to hit the brakes. So, Father, Lord, just as Paul prayed for the Colossians and for the people of Laodicea, Father, Lord, we pray that you would continue to have us relish, Father Lord, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but not with lip service, Father Lord, but like in the depths of our heart that we would understand the magnitude, the width, and the depth of our brokenness. Not in condemnation, Father Lord. Not in emotionalism, Father Lord, but in conviction that we are guilty. And though we are guilty, we are made innocent because of the blood of Jesus. So I pray that we would lavish ourselves in that richness and that we would functionally lavish each other with that in relationship. That we would count it such a thing, Father Lord, that we would cast off lies, cultural lies, carnality, things that set themselves up against God, things that bear fruit that is not pleasing to you, Lord. So we thank you, Father, and we pray this. We pray, Father, Lord, that you bless us as we come forward for communion today. We thank you, Father, Lord, that we even count it as worthy to take communion because of your blood that was shed, because of your body being broken. I pray, Father, Lord, that nobody walks up here nonchalantly as if this is just a tradition and just a thing to do, but that we would all with reverence grasp the weightiness and just a glimpse of the significance of what you have done for us, what you have saved us from, what you are doing going forward, what you are doing to our neighbors and our community through what you have done on the cross. This is all you. This is all you. And we are rich to be here. So, Father Lord, we take communion today, Father Lord, in honor of you as King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.